Welcome. I'm your host, Carl Nelms, and this is the Bloke Psychology Podcast, where we discuss everything from men's health, mental health, relationships, psychology, masculinity, and pretty much everything that relates to being a man in today's society. Today's episode features Mr. Gary Wilson, also known as Gus. Gus is a veteran of the Australian Defence Force and he joined the Australian Army as a cavalryman in 2005 and served until 2017. In that time, he became an instructor of gunnery, studying at the Australian Army School of Armour, a cavalry crew commander and trainer. During his time in the Army, he did two separate operational tours of Iraq, the first being a combat tour in 06-07 and a training tour 2015 whereby he trained local forces for the fight against ISIS. Since leaving the army, Gus has worked in disability care, become a state-level representative rugby coach, and is now the owner of three barber businesses. Gus is a truly ripper bloke, and I guarantee this will inspire men all over Australia and the world. He really does redefine what it means to be a man in today's society, And he shares with us some truly powerful insights about the transformation that he experienced due to his time in the Defence Force and how that changed his idea of what it meant to be a man, challenging those stereotypical beliefs, his view on his own mental health and mental health in general, coming to terms with PTSD and what that means for him, and the challenging journey that many veterans face when being discharged and trying to reintegrate into civilian society. And lastly, just a word of warning. This is a pretty raw episode, so it might bring up some really challenging feelings for some people. And if that's you, I really encourage you, please speak to somebody you trust about that. Reach out to Lifeline or an equivalent service in your local area, or seek independent professional advice and consultation from a health professional. And just lastly, a huge apology. There is a slight crackle in my microphone throughout some of this episode. Really annoying because it's the last episode I wanted this to happen in. And I tell you, if it was any other episode, I probably would scrap it. But this really was so raw and powerful, I thought, stuff it. I'm going to publish it anyway. So apologies in advance. It's pretty minor. Won't happen again. Enjoy. And we're live. Welcome back to the Bloke Psychology Podcast. Today, I'm here with Mr. Gary or Gus Wilson. Gus, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, mate. Good to see you. Good to see you again, Sue. So, Gus and I ended up catching up uh, at the bar, actually, <laughs> a while ago at a charity event up in uh, up his way in uh, a town by the name of Grafton. And we, it turns out we were both uh, their guest speakers for the night, speaking on very similar topics, it turned out. Now, Gus uh, was... my content, mate. Yeah. I remember <laughs> that's the first thing he said. He said, he stole yeah. all my notes. Yeah. Gus was in the Australian Army uh, for 12 years until 2017. So, th- first question I want to throw at you, Gus, is what was that experience like? Because that's an incredible uh, journey, you know, a long time to spend in the Army. Yeah. Mate, it, was, it all started out for me as a something I wanted to uh, give back. And that was the easiest way I guess I could find when I was that age. I wanted to, to go and do something exciting while doing something I felt was kind of noble. So, um, of course, I think whenever you start anything that you really want, it's always super, super exciting and super, super fun. And, and I found that that was the case, certainly for me. Um, what I didn't really realise is, is when I, you know, and, and some advice I give young guys going in now is when you do go in, you really got to realise that it's going to change you somehow, whether mm. it's good, bad, indifferent. You're going to change by going into, and I don't think that's just military. I think that's police. I think that's fire service. Something where you really need to learn not just a new skill, but to be almost a, a new person in in some regard. So for me, it was just an awesome experience. I started out, you know, um, it wasn't quite like what you see in the movies, but it was pretty close, <laughs> you know. Um, 
getting screamed at doing all the wrong things all the wrong time and you didn't even know you were doing the wrong thing all the wrong time. And we had, we had a great time, um, you know, uh, meeting a whole group, new group of mates, going through the whole thing together and got really, really tight um, really, really quickly. Uh, we're all posted, like me and the mates that were posted to Darwin. We had a great time there because um, we had no one else. Like no one there was from Darwin. I think it was one guy that was from Darwin in a group of about 20 of us. Wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of in terms of male bonding, mate, there's, you know, we're all living together, we're working together, socialising together. Outstanding experience that way. And then, um, you know, throughout my career that you sort of grow, we, I was deployed to Iraq <clears throat> in 2006, 2007. I guess that's probably something we'll talk a bit more on a little bit later, but... Um, that was an overall positive experience um, that perhaps had some challenges that came with that both at the time and certainly later. And, uh, you know, came back from that, went into a different job in helicopters for a while, um, got injured, couldn't fly anymore, went back to what my original job was in the cavalry, uh, worked my way up through the ranks there. One thing I did notice, though, was when we... When you did work your way up the ranks, um, you get more and more isolated the higher and higher you go. And that mm. was tough. So as you progress, those guys that I talked about that was, we were super, super tight, we ended up all across the country um, apart from one another. So you sort of had to go and rebuild relationship again, but the pool of relationships you could build got smaller and smaller just because of hierarchical structure, you know. So you didn't necessarily get along with everyone as perhaps you did at the start. Um, but another good thing about that is you can sort of learn to reconnect. Uh, mm. So then 2015, I went to Iraq again in a training capacity this time. Uh, that was a really interesting experience, working with foreign nationals with language barriers and, and um, cultural barriers. Uh, or cultural differences is probably a better way to put it, um, while still working in a very hierarchical type team as well. Um, that was a lot more benign, that tour, I suppose. So we didn't do a lot of fighting then, but it was more or less training uh, Iraqi forces uh, for the fight against ISIS. My career came to an end with the Army... Um, that sort of that started in 2016, and and frankly, I, I they found out about some injuries that I've been hiding for a long, long time. <laughs> um, so, well, basically, it came down to I knew if I let them know what was wrong, that I wouldn't last very long um, mm. in the military. And I never wanted to leave, man. Like I was going, I was going to be in for forever, as far as I was concerned. So. Um, they found out about these injuries through me reporting them, funnily enough. Um, didn't really mean for it to go the way it did, but life never does. So uh, then they found out about these injuries and and that started the process for me to be medically discharged after that. Wow. Hmm. That, that camaraderie you spoke of earlier on, I mean, I, th I think there's probably nothing... Parall that parallels that in the defence force. I mean, maybe in sporting clubs, but still probably not yeah. to the extreme in the defence force. I mean, is that sort of what attracted you to it initially? You know what? I don't think so. I don't think that was my attraction to it. I think my attraction to the military in the first is. So I was always grown up. I was that guy at school. I won the, like in high school, I won the, you know, the open boys sports champion just because I wanted to be in everything, man. You know, like <laughs> I, I literally played mixed netball, AFL, rugby. Um, like I had a pretty, I had a pretty decent rugby career sort of post um, joining the army. But like in school, man, like I just didn't want to be at school. I just wanted to go and, you know, play stuff. You know, and experience. Go, stuff go do and stuff. Go and do stuff, mate. And that's, and that was, um, yeah. And I guess that was a big driver for me at the start. My dad was in the army, did a brief stint back in the eighties, and uh, the uh, late seventies, early eighties. And he always just spoke so highly of it, and the mates he made in there, and 
all that type of stuff. So I guess initially the camaraderie aspect of it might have been a, a good, um, I guess, byproduct, I suppose, of what I actually wanted to achieve. But I just really wanted to something exciting, man. Like I got offered when I, well, I remember when I got offered in recruiting, I got offered uh, avionics technician job in the Air Force. I got offered a uh, electronics technician job in the Army or a cavalry job in the Army. So those were the three options I had. And I kind of thought to myself, well, if I'm going to go to the Army, I want to blow some shit up. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> that's really what I thought. And, you know, uh, in the cavalry, we got to play with some pretty neat armoured vehicles and some pretty big guns. So I thought, well, that's that's what I'm joining for. That's what I want to do. I want to do something exciting. Probably like but, many guys I mean, out yeah, of high school. And you know what? Yeah. And why wouldn't you? Like, that's the only place you really can do it freely and, you know, legally, I guess. Mm. Yeah. And the, I guess the camaraderie that comes with it, it was, it was an afterthought for me, I guess. But, geez, mate, it was so important, you know, and, and so uh, helpful because it's not easy. I mean... Like it's a huge culture shock going from being a civilian guy who can you know go out and have whatever haircut you want and don't have to shave for a week and you know go out and piss whenever you want and whatever. Going from that to like a really stringent set of rules and people who enforce them twenty four hours a day, it's a real culture shock. And and I guess going through something like that, you know, doing it by yourself would be pretty tough but if you've got mates there with you they can have a laugh about it at all i guess it softens the blow a little bit you spoke uh initially just about how something like this changes people yeah how do you think overall it changed you what was the biggest change well man like after my first tour to iraq i guess i'll rewind a little bit so when i first joined um like i said i was a bit of a guy thought I could kind of get out and do whatever I wanted. But it really instilled a sense of, like, everyone talks about, you know what, like, I talk to some people about my experience in the military and they talk about I couldn't go to the military because, you know, I couldn't handle discipline. I'd tell them all to get fucked and whatever. But I kind of sit there and go, no, you wouldn't, man. Like, you know, and I kind of think that's that's such a wank thing to say to me. You know, like, you couldn't handle discipline, like, you know, I'm some kind of pushover. Like, mm. nah, man. Like, I was never a pushover, dude. But it was just for a higher purpose for me. So I come along to the military. We join up. Um, like, I had a uh, I had a sense of pride already, I guess, when it came to being in the military just because my dad was in and, and we'd always sort of observed Anzac Day and, and the things surrounding that as a as a source of pride for for everyone. So I already had that kind of in me, and then then I was living it. So that was a real positive experience for me. Was just pride in myself, I guess. Um, I felt like I was living up to people's uh, expectations, or not that necessarily they had any, but I felt like you know I was someone that people could be proud of, and and all of that type of stuff. Now. Fast forward a little now and then first tour to Iraq, I go there and I think, you know, I walk into the country, man, I'm shitting myself the first time I went to the country. But you can't show it, right? Because, like, the people who are most revered, man, are the dudes who aren't scared of nothing, right? So you go in there and, like, I, I step off the plane. I still remember it clear as day. First day I ever stepped off a plane on a tarmac in Iraq. And I thought as soon as I stepped off the plane, mate, I'd be doing commando rolls and, like, trying to shoot at people and let <laughs> bombs going off everywhere and whatever. Mate, I, t- I stepped off and I'm, I'm heightened as. And uh, and I guess I look around and there's, you know, I got shown to my room. I got shown to the showers. I got shown where I eat. I got to settle into my room. Nothing was happening. It was all chill. You know, the next day I get up, I go find my vehicle. And we start looking after that. And there was no... Like, nothing happened. Mm. But I'm at this heightened state, right? So, and that didn't go away, bro. That didn't go away. Like, the first time I was ever, I guess, 
my life was ever in danger from another person was probably about a month after I arrived in country. Nothing had happened until then. We'd been out a few times. Nothing really kicked off. But the first time it ever happened was uh, on the base and we got rocket attacks. So they started lobbing rockets into our base, right? Now, at the time, man, like I said, nothing had happened, but I was always ready for something to happen. And I guess Mm. I'm sitting there. And I'm on the phone to my girlfriend at the time. We're having a chat. Next thing you know, I heard these little faint thuds in the background. And we kind of had training on this type of stuff. So, like, I knew what they were. And then I said to my girlfriend on the phone, I said, I'm going to have to go. And what happened is every time that any we got attacked or there was action or whatever, they'd cut the phones, cut the internet, like you just couldn't talk. So all she heard me say was, I'm going to have to go and then, like, an explosion and then the phone's cut, right? Shit. So, yeah, man. So it's not just me shitting myself here. Like, it's it's the people back in Australia. So, anyway, here I am, absolutely shit myself. I hit the deck, man, like, crawling to a bunker, you know, just crazy, um, crazy scared. And then... Uh, so th- then there was a process. You had to wait a certain amount of time after all this stuff went off and and then you could come back out and then you had to get your name marked off and, like, it was a process. So I did that and then called her back, uh, called my girlfriend back. And I was like, hey, sorry about that. And couldn't tell her what was going on because, you know, not allowed to. So operational security, they call it. But she's a mess. And I took responsibility for that too, right? Like, mm. yeah, I couldn't help. I couldn't help what happened, but um, I was a mess. But mate, like that happens enough times. Like those attacks happen enough times, you know. And then we'd go out, and you know, a little bit of stuff would happen when we were out, and whatever. But if that happens enough times, man, you just you, you become numb to it. And and I guess the first time it happened, I was like, and I shit myself so hard. Like I was kind of ashamed of myself because I was so scared. Um, and I just nailed that out of me straight away. So I turned from that guy into this dude then who there'd be rockets raining down on the base. And I'm that guy strolling across open ground, dragging my body armor behind me because I didn't want people to see me as some sort of fucking coward. <laughs> you know? And, like, I still remember a good mate of mine who I went to school with and I were both there at the same time. Like, we're in different units or whatever, but it just so happened that we'd been deployed together. I still remember seeing him across the, the open ground I was walking across, and he's going, fucking run. And I'm sitting here going, no, man, it's cool. They're not going to hit me. You know, very cavalier, fucking stupid. You know, like, just, and, and you know, like, and he he sit there after it, and he tell people stories about this bloke's mad, like, he doesn't care, man, like, you know, he walks the bunkers and whatever. And, mate, I wore that as a badge of honour, bro. Like, I thought I was the toughest guy in the world mm. because he was telling stories like that about me, man. And that's what I wanted at the time, you know. That's how I wanted – that's how I thought people needed to see me. So, I guess in terms of how it changed me, dude, like, um, I turned from a guy who's – I've always been – I guess really compassionate, really soft sort of a guy when I was growing up. And that's thanks to my family. My family were amazing. I had an excellent childhood. I had endless opportunities. You know, my parents were really supportive of everything. Um, I had some fantastic extended family members who were always trying to teach me and guide me. And I had a fantastic childhood, man. But I went from this really soft, compassionate guy to someone who... Uh, wanted the world to see him differently. Wanted the world. I wanted the world to see me as uh, a tough bastard, basically. And then I t- that translated into my rugby career. So I wanted to be that guy who ran over the top of everyone and hit them harder than they've ever been hit. Um, and you know what? Like, and in that setting, Carl, there's that's probably not a bad thing, dude. Like. Mm. You know, like you want someone like that fighting next to you. Well, I certainly did. Like, I don't want some dude who's going to 
you know, care about how the enemy feels about what I'm doing, <laughs> fighting next to me. You know, like, like in that setting, man, that's that's a good thing. But see, the problem comes then when you try and not be that guy anymore. Mm. Where did that when pressure you're... come from, Gus? Like, did was that put on yourself, or was that the environmental sort of culture of the army, or? Mate, I don't want to speak negatively to the culture in the army because it's my firm belief that you need warriors, man. Like, in mm. those jobs, you need warriors, and warriors aren't PC, dude. Like, they're just – they can't be, man. Yeah. You know? And that's, like – I've never been special forces. I don't – I know a couple of special forces guys, but I've never really talked in depth to them about that. But those guys are warriors, man. Like – and they are they're they're tough men and they're stoic men and they you know they don't need praise for what they do, um, so a lot of them I would suggest and, and again from an uneducated standpoint that you know when they are like that they're either like that already or that's self imposed on them, but they have to go through a huge selection process to get into that realm right so they have to put that on themselves straight away to be stoic, to be tough, to be resilient, to move forward. Now, for me, I think for me, it was sort of probably a little bit environmental, but not institutionally. So it wasn't from the army, but it was from the guys in the army around me who I looked up to, you know, because I, I saw them as warriors. So I see them, how they conduct themselves. And I still, I still know a lot of these guys now, really good guys, you know, but I look up to them because they're warriors and because that's what I want to be. So that's how I have to be. So for me, it was probably I put that on myself as much as it was the, the guys around me. But don't get me wrong, man. Like, I really think that that's a good thing for that institution. Mm. Like, I think it, it you have to be, you know, for, for your strength, resilience, and be able to come out the other end of it and not... Um, not feel like you've let the world down or you've done the wrong thing. Or I remember asking when I was over there, I remember asking the padre that was over there, the chaplain, said to me, man, because I've, like, I've always had a real problem with, uh, with, with religion. Like I can't, I just can't come at it. Like I can't rationalize it. I can't, but I wanted to, I wanted to try, right? Cause I wanted, I wanted, something that way i wanted something spiritually to to help me out with what was what i was doing you know so i went to the padre and said how can it be that god says i'm not allowed to kill anyone but it's okay when the government sends me here to do it mm. you know how is that and you know he couldn't he couldn't answer me he's a, he was the top guy man like one of the best i've met but he couldn't answer me so I kind of go, well, you know, <laughs> like that. And that, I guess that's just the way my, my brain works. But I guess in terms of how I changed, um, I got far more straight up and down, down the line. Um, I got far more critical. I got far more of myself and far more critical of the world around me as well. Um, you know, first world problems became first world problems so my empathy went way down man <laughs> and did and, you realize uh, gus at the time like did you realize that you were becoming you know a different sort of man emotionally psychologically at the time no mate because i was praised mm. i was praised for what i was doing dude like people wanted me around and people wanted me in their teams you know i um like, I remember, like, I got, so when I went through recruit training, I got awarded uh, the, the Student of Merit Award for my advanced soldier training when they, that was what was happening at the time with their recruit training. You do recruit training and advanced soldier training, and I got Student of Merit for that in my platoon, which was, you know, at the time, for me, was a huge honour, you know, and then, you know, I always prided myself on doing really, really well, so I was being, no, I didn't notice I'd changed. And if I did notice a change in myself, I thought it was a really, really positive one. Mm. Um, 
you know, because I was, you know, geez, he's, he's good. He's good to have around. But that mate of mine who's sitting there going, look at that tough bastard, doesn't care if rockets are raining down, if following him, he'll just, he'll walk across some open ground into a bunker and not give a fuck. Like, that's just, that was for me, like I said, a badge of honour, man. But what brought it home to me, dude, was when I got home, and we talked about this in that in that talk at the at the ball last year. Like I got home, and of course, like I spent some time with my girlfriend at the time, and um, went home to see my folks, and um, went to see my mum. And I spent maybe three days with my mum, and she sits there and she goes, "You've changed, man." I'm like, "Fuck off, mum! I haven't changed." Yeah, and that in itself, like that thought process in itself, like the arrogance of me to say that to somebody who's known me my entire life and knows me inside and out, like that in itself was a change, you know. So at the time, I didn't, I paid no mind to it. I'm like, I haven't changed. I'm fine. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, I'm this tough bastard. Everybody knows I'm a tough bastard. You know, <laughs> that's what it was. But um, but at the time, I I never thought I'd change for the worse. I'd always thought it was for the better, if I had it all. And so, when when did it become? I suppose when did it become clear for yourself that you had changed? I mean, I want to be very clear here too. It's not about knocking the culture in the army or defence force because mm. I can see you know the way you explain that. That is. It, it's probably essential to have guys like you in the defense force in the army for a lot of up for that other guy who looks at him and goes wow look how tough he is and to motivate them yeah. but yeah i imagine especially once you come back to civilian life that does have some negative things that pop up for you and challenges when did it become apparent to yourself that well maybe some of these changes aren't necessarily the best for me long term yeah. You know what, mate? Like, if I had stayed in the military for my entire career and that's the life I lived forever, mate, well, there wouldn't have been a problem, mm. I don't think. Um, that's what's expected to a certain extent. Or was, you know, the army, well, the military's a different place now than it was. And you like, sound, I sound like such an old dude saying that, man. But, like, it's a, it's a different army now to the army I joined. And you talk to any anyone who's been in sort of you know 15 to 20 years now and they'll say the same thing like it's a different place so for me i was uh i was driving so i just found out that i was i was looking at being medically discharged so i was looking at civilian world a little bit and there was like heightened stress with that because i didn't want to get out and um and my hand was kind of forced a little bit um, and it was taken out of my control. So that in itself, like, you know, I can't control the situation, so I'm freaking out about it. Um, so, yeah, I'm driving around and, and we just found out my partner was pregnant not long before that. Um, so I'm driving down the road uh, in Brisbane, down Inogra Road, and then this woman cut me off in a car and like in a cavalry setting. So in what I was doing in Iraq the first time, uh, the first time I went, um, that was like, if a car did that to you over there, you know, they meant you harm. Well, they, you know, that's how it would register. So mate, this woman, it was just a woman in like a Hyundai gets or something like it was nothing. But she fully cut me off, nearly run us off the road. I've got my pregnant missus in the car next to me, you know. My head went straight to, how do I kill her? I want to kill her. She needs to die for what she just nearly did to us. Wow. And and I kind of thought, you know, I had these thoughts before, man, but I never acted on it, obviously. And, like, I had these thoughts before and I thought, you know, this is just how I think because, you know, whatever. So, but I'd never told anyone, right? So I turned to my pregnant missus who'd just, you know, also nearly been run off the road and I said, this is what my head's doing. This is what I just thought. And she sort of looked at me with kind of squinty eyes and a little bit of a raised eyebrow and said, that's not normal. That's all she said. And then 
that inspired me then to go see the psychs at work. So next time I went into work, um, I went into work, did PT, and then I went, took myself straight down to the psych, psych office down there and, and told them the story. And, uh, and then they said, okay, well, not normal. Um, you need to go and talk to this person and this person. And they sort of bounced me around a little bit. So it turns out, because I never had nightmares, man. Like I had, I think I had a couple of nightmares when I first got back um, the first time, but I'd never had any nightmares or anything after that. And then I went to, um, went to see a really good psychologist in Brisbane and she was like, she, like I consider this woman to a, to be one of the, you know, clinically one of the better people I've ever seen in any regard, physically, mentally, whatever. She was just incredible. And she uh, sort of suggested that I had post-traumatic stress disorder, but I didn't understand that, man. Like I went, that's not right because I don't wake up screaming. I don't, you know, I don't bash my missus. I don't like... That's not, I'm not, I don't have PTSD. And I was always so critical of people who claim to have had it mm. when I was still in the army. I thought, you weak bastard, you know, you're a weak bastard. And I thought, I never thought that I had it. I just thought I was cranky. Anyway, so, but they then um, diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder when I went to see a psychiatrist after that. I got um, post-traumatic stress disorder, but not the type where I'm scared to go out in public at all um, or the, where I withdraw from people or have night terrors or anything like that. So my post-traumatic stress disorder was based on hypervigilance. So always looking for something to go wrong. Um, if I go into a big crowded shopping centre, like anxiety just through the roof. And I just never thought, I just thought I didn't like crowds. Like, there was never a reason for it at that point. Mm. But they get, they put a reason to it. So, mate, it wasn't until a decade later, um, after my first tour, that anybody ever flagged an issue with me, you know? But was again, that same feeling, Gus, that, that feeling that you spoke of, the hypervigilance when you're in the shopping centres or driving down, as you said that, it took me back to your story about when you first got off the plane on your first deployment, was that the same sort of hyper arousal of just being on that you spoke of? Yeah, man. And you're just on all the time, mm. you know, I saw like before, like on a pre-deployment before my second tour pre-deployment brief we had, this guy explained it so well, man. He's like, he explained it like there's a top band and a bottom band of, of sort of regular emotion when you're just chilling here in Australia going to work there's some stresses there's some you know chill out time and he said if the bottom one's like you're sedentary on the couch watching your favorite show on netflix and the top is like the most stressful you're going to get when you nearly well they say just you're nearly going to get run off the road right when you're most stressful you're most protective whatever so he said you operate in that band and you're pretty comfortable now when you go and get deployed so your bottom rung moves up because there's always a threat of something happening but your top rung also goes right up right because mm. the worst possible thing that could happen would be fucking catastrophic right and not just for you but everyone around you so he said all of a sudden your operating bands get so much wider and he said, and trying to close them back down when you come back into an environment that isn't, um, you know, which is, you know, effectively benign compared to what you're operating in overseas. Trying to bring that back closer together, he said, is one of the hardest things anyone ever does. And that's what, that's what my, um, my mental illness, I guess, is, is. Like, I sit there and, and I always go worst-case scenario. Now, I mean, I'm dealing with a lot better nowadays, but I didn't even know that was fucking happening, you know? Mm. I said, I just thought I was being protective or whatever. And I guess that's a lot of it too. Like, a lot of it was I just wanted to protect everyone around me by being the tough guy or being the tough guy. Mm. 
you know, I wanted to be that guy who looked after him. Well, that's that's the sort of irony and the truth behind sort of PTSD and those symptoms like hypervigilance, isn't it? That it, from an objective sense, they make sense because yeah. you've been in that upper echelon, that upper threshold of, you know, I could die today. You know, I've got to protect myself and the guys next to me. And you come back to driving on the road where that lady in the Hyundai gets, cuts you off. Yeah. Your caveman brain's still thinking, hang on, what sort of threat is that? And yeah, man. Yeah, totally. And 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 like you said, the caveman brain thing, like I didn't even there's no consideration, and that's the hard part to try and explain, I guess, is that there was no consideration that that was just a you know, a woman in her late thirties and a piano gets. Like there was no consideration to that. It was literally a you are a threat, I need to remove you. Mm-hmm. And um and you know what, like I'm really glad that happened, Carl. Like I don't know who that woman is, I'll never see her again, and even if I do I won't know who she is, but she she'll never know that someone wanted to kill her that day for no for no good reason, mate. You know, and like I don't feel good about that, man. But I feel good that it happened because fuck, it's made my life heaps a little, I guess, easier because now I understand. Well, from that point, I could actually try start to understand after some time and some some help. Um, start to understand why, you know. Because mm-hmm. imagine, imagine I let that go. Imagine I let that go another ten years, and I'm triggered like that, and I just lose it, man. Like I don't know if I would have lost it or I wouldn't lose it. I don't know. But imagine if I had, man. Like that's bad shit would happen, dude. You know. Yeah. So I'm I'm super super happy that one, um, it happened, and I spoke about it. And, I mean, it's, what, three, yeah, probably three years since you were discharged, Gus, and I know afterwards you, you played a bit of rugby and you are also on the motivational speaking circuit for a while, talking about men's health, men's mental health in particular, because that's something you're quite passionate about. How has your yeah. own lived experience, your time in the Defence Force, how has that changed your perspective on masculinity and where men's mental health is at? Oh, dude. So, the... The big, big, big turning point here for me was my daughter being born. And, like, and I know everyone says that, and for different reasons in their life, man. But for me, my daughter, um, she came out, and, and, and all of a sudden, I am not a tough bastard. Man, I like, let me tell you this story. So I take my daughter for a six-week needles, bro, right? You know, when the kids, they've got to go get vaccinated after six weeks so they don't you know, die a hoop and cough or whatever. So there I am. I go in there. Doctor comes in. Nurse comes in. They're giving a one in each leg, right? And they say to me, Gus, um, can you just hold her down, right? So I'm holding my daughter down on the table. And the doctor gets one needle and nurse gets one needle. And they count down from three, two, one. And they put them put both needles in her legs, all right, one in each leg. Now, this kid, mate, she looks up at me and she's giggly and happy when we're putting it down on the table and then as soon as those needles went in, her face changed to like, you fuck, what did you just, you betrayed me, you know? And I'm like, uh, I, I don't know how to react here. And she just screamed, man. And like, I... Like, I cried more than she did that day, right? So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this little tiny little thing, right, has turned me from the toughest bloke in the world, in my mind, to this blithering friggin' idiot because she got needles that would, you know, that help her in the long run, right? (laughs) So now, so from, from now, no longer are needles my responsibility, mate. I don't do them no more. That's her mum's responsibility from now on. But um, aside from that, mate, so I look at masculinity so much differently to I did. So we talked before about how, you know, um, the toughest guy was the guy who never cared for his own safety and, and, and would put himself at peril and, and just didn't care about it. And, you know, Iraqi soldiers, when I was training them, that's how they measured their good soldiers, were the guys who'd stand up behind a parapet with a machine gun with, you know, 
on flayed fire from four different directions and not care for his own safety. That was a measure for a good soldier for them. Like for us, we think that's really stupid in the West. Wow. In, in developed armies, you know, but for those guys, that's what, that was the measure of their, their top soldier, right? So, um, so here's me thinking that that is the epitome of masculinity, right? The warrior, the guy who goes out and um, puts himself in peril so that he can help everyone else and do things that no one else is willing to do. That was my idea of masculinity. And that was you know, what I grew up with, like these really stoic men who don't cry, they don't show emotion, they, they get out and they, they toil in the fields all day um, just to be able to put potato mash on the table. You know, like that, that's the type of guys that, that I always looked up to and good men, and they were good men. All of them were good men. The guys I served with, all good men. Um, but it, that's not what I see masculinity as now, man. Like masculinity for me now is doing what you need to do to make sure your family is happy and safe. Like it doesn't matter how you achieve it. And you, me being a friggin' psycho and wanting to kill people in Hyundai Getzes, <laughs> mate, that is not, that is not good masculinity. Like, if my daughter grows up and sees me losing it because someone didn't look before they merged in a lane, what is her perception of men going to be? You know, that's normal. That's okay because dad did it. That's not okay, dude. So my perception of masculinity now really comes down to be present with the people you love and be present with the people you need to protect and don't put yourself under any pressure to, to take yourself into a place where you're going to be toxic to them or you're going to be you know, avoiding the term toxic masculinity, but that's what it is, mate. Like, it's a cliche term now as far as I'm concerned, but that's what it is. Like, you want to sit there and try and be the toughest bloke in the world, well, all you're going to do is just teach people how not to be good to one another, you know? Mm. So I I, um, I don't care if people don't see me as the tough, ever-enduring guy. I don't care if people see me cry because my daughter got needles and it hurt me to see it. You know, my priorities have changed, man. My priorities before was, you know, getting my name on a wall for something but now it's just about doing what's right for the people around me i guess and that's you know and that that takes so many forms dude you know i coach i coach rugby now and and i did a presentation the other day or oh, a couple of weeks ago now i guess with a representative team about um, mindset you know and and emotional intelligence as far as you know, you get punched in the side of the head in the bottom of a ruck in a rugby game, right? Immediately, your immediate response is to want to get up and, you know, either the fight, fight or freeze response. And generally with rugby players, you find that the fight response is generally the one they go, <laughs> it's their go-to. Um, but, um, you know, and these were 16-year-old kids, man. And we talked about, you know, how to identify that that's happening, why it's happening, um, what you want to do to come past that. I mean, that fight, flight or freeze response is going to come because essentially you're under threat. So you want to understand um, why it's happening so that then you can sit there and go, well, you know, is that the best way to, to approach it? Understand the consequences, that type of stuff. And I've done so much reflection since finding out about, one, my diagnosis, but again, my daughter being born. I've done so much reflection and just thought, she doesn't need a dad growing up who's angry all the time and um, just so that people don't seem as weak, you know. Mm. I think we, we as men, we have so much pressure to, to be what, whatever, you know, this perception of masculinity in the world is. And if we don't live up to it, then we get angry. If we don't live up to it, then we start doing stupid things to try and prove ourselves. And um, from a guy who's done a fair bit of stuff in his life, man, like 
and I have done a fair bit of stuff in my life, dude. Like, I, it's just, it's not worth your kid not having a parent, for one, and growing up thinking that masculinity has to be something that, you know, is based on what other people feel it should be. You know, mm. people look at people look at you and go, "He's not a man because he cried at his dad's funeral or something." You know, fuck off, man. You're allowed to do that, dude. You're allowed to have emotions. You're allowed to show them, and people should respect that. One well, thing, I mean that that that's so powerful, Gus. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, the one thing that comes up for me as you were saying that is. How if that Hyundai gets hadn't pulled you over or cut you off rather, if you hadn't turned to your partner at the time, if you hadn't have had your daughter, how easily, you know, potentially you could have become yet another veteran statistic down the track of suicide. Yeah, man. And look, that's not like, and you know, it, there's so many guys out there just screaming for help, you know, screaming for help. And, and then when they do scream for help, they get the people look at them and go, you're weak. Or you couldn't hack it. Or what do you mean? You never even went overseas. But you don't know what that dude's gone through, what he's seen, what's been said to him. Like, you just don't know. And and I was so critical before, Carl. Like, I'd, I would sit there and look at guys who claim to have PTSD and just think, you haven't done anything, mate. You haven't done anything, you know? And I like I've never been through an experience that I would consider particularly traumatic to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. But I know I was trained a certain way and operated at a level for an extended period of time, which, you know, probably contributes heavily to it. But I never understood it, man. I never sought to understand it. You know, I had a perception of what it was and that's what I cared about. But you're dead right. Like, I could have absolutely been a statistic and not, you know, perhaps not suicide, perhaps in jail or... Yeah, homicide. Uh, homicide, yeah. Who fucking knows, man? Like, it, it could have been anything. But, but because, because I understood, well, not understood, but because I thought about what had happened and because I turned to my partner and told her... Um, and, and don't get me wrong, man, like, like having, like, she was very, very good about this, um, at the time, like she was just very, very, let's get you help. Mm. Um, and, and it's so hard to get help when you don't think you need it, mate, you know, and, and, and that was, that was me. Like, I don't need help. Like, I'm fine, man. Like, take me or leave me. I don't give a shit what you think about me, but I did. I really did give a shit what people thought about me. Um, and that's the only reason that I continued to try and be this tough bastard for as long as I did was just because that's what I felt people were needed from me or expected of me or whatever. But there's so many guys out there now, man, they need help, dude. And and it's financial help and it's... It's emotional help and it's physical help and there's just so many guys out there that need it, dude, And but they don't know they need it. They yeah. don't think anything is wrong, you know. And I was saying every veteran out there is, you know, a loose cannon because they're not, and we're not, man. Like, I didn't, I never considered myself a loose cannon. I just had these thoughts, you know. I'm just glad I talked about them so now maybe I can get out there and get someone else to... Just say, hey, this was the thought I just had. How hard was that for you? I mean, coming back from that environment where you prided yourself on being really tough, really stoic, really self-reliant, and then having your wife say, hey, we need to get you help. You know, you spoke so much about uh, the hardest part about getting help when you don't want it is actually realizing that hey i might need that help which i think a lot of guys you know we see heaps in our clinic that a guy will come and i'll sort of ask you know what do you want to get out of this and i'll go ah i'm not too sure but i know my wife's been telling me for a while or something like that so they haven't reached that point either so how hard was that for you to go through the motions when deep down you're going shit do i really actually need this yeah um 
You know what I think it was, mate, is I think it was because she was pregnant. I think it was my, my first child was coming and as soon as we found out she was pregnant, I, I just wanted to be the best father I possibly could. So that was, I guess you could really double down on it and say, well, this was my priorities now were my child and my partner, my family. My, my priorities had shifted, you know. So, and, and, oh, man, like, I think because she was pregnant and I wanted to be the best I could be and she's sitting there challenging me as a father without doing so, you know. She's sitting there going, not right, bro. You, you know, we're, and, and subconsciously to me, she's going, um, we're about to bring a child into the world and if you're going to be losing your shit like that, bro, you know, it's not going to be okay. And you know what? I think that for me, for me, that was um, that was a turning point. You know, uh, that was that was what motivated me to go and see someone. It was because now my life's more than me. Now my mm. life's not about being, you know the RSM of the army or it's not about that now. It's about having a child whose father's present and happy. And like, that's what my life became. And I think that was a motivating factor for me. Was it hard? Yeah, dude, because I knew that as soon as I went to see someone, I knew that um, I would be criticized. I knew that people who thought the same way I did, about PTSD would label me the same way I labeled people. I knew that. So to let people know that, I remember I was on the phone to my boss once because I, I think I said before that I had um, shoulder injuries and that was the first, the physical injuries that, that first started my path out of the army, I suppose. So uh, I remember being on the phone to him, talking to him about, my um, my medical boards and stuff, and uh, and he said, and the doctor had said because I dislocated my shoulders in the guard room when I was on guard one night, Oof. so I went to the doctor. I went to the, yeah, yeah, just literally rolling over in bed. So I went to the doctor the next day and told him. He goes, oh, well, we put a restriction so you can't be put on guard anymore. Anyway, so. And the same visit, I talked to the doctor about the PTSD stuff that the psychs were giving me and whatever. So I was talking to my boss on the phone. And he said, why can't you do guard? And I said, because my shoulders are fucked, man. Like, I can't roll over. So, you know. And he goes, oh. He said, what's this other crap? And I said, um, I've been diagnosed with PTSD as well. And he goes, oh, now there's fucking mental health. Click and hung up on me. Right. So I'm like, and you know, like, I thought, geez, and that's again not the army, man. That's not the army. That's 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 an individual. Mm. Right. Um, but that's I knew that would happen, and that was hard for me, man, because tough guy, really good at my job. Um, I won awards for my job. Um, got you know. I never got, uh, so I was getting, you know, awards for excellence and all this stuff, you know, doing really well in all my courses, promotion courses, whatever. Um, I was just on the cusp of being promoted again. Um, and then talk about a fall from grace, dude, you know. So I knew that would happen. So in terms of how hard it was, it was one of the hardest things I think I will ever do. Was, was own up to what was wrong with me. But, you know, again, what's the alternative, man? I think, Gus, uh, your story is so powerful to have somebody like yourself who's been in that literal life or death environment to be able to come from that, as you say, that fall from, you know, grace at the time to then be in a therapist's office or a psychiatrist's office and have to drop that facade, drop that, you know, that stoic mentality and realize, hang on, maybe there is some shit I need to sort here. 
and actually address that. I mean, if you can do that, I think, you know, any guy listening to this should take confidence and go, you know what, maybe I can do that too. Yeah. Well, geez, I hope so, man. And, you know, like if any, if I can help those dudes in any way, like, I don't know if there's some way they can reach out through you or I don't know, but if there was a way that I could talk them out of wanting to be the tough bastard all the time, I'd love, I'd love to be able to try and do that, man, because I don't want, I don't want a heap of guys getting around and doing dumb shit because they think that's what the world needs them to do. Um, putting themselves in ridiculous positions because that's what they feel masculinity has to be. You know, you know, I need to dominate. You know, I need to be the man of the household, so I'm going to hit my missus around till she does what I say and shit like that. Like, no, mate. Like, that's not. Mm. Men don't do that. Men look after their shit. Men look after their kids. Men look after their partners. Men look after their families. Men look after their friends. Men look after their jobs. Men look after their community. That's what men do. That's what we are here for. We're not here to be some dominant, domineering, overbearing psychopath that just wants to control the world around him completely and will do anything to get that done. That's not what we're here for. And guys need to hear that sometimes, man, and probably from a six-foot-two dude with a big beard and tattoos. Like, sometimes <laughs> that just needs to happen, bro, you know? I had a guy call me the other day, a guy I served with, really, really good guy. Loved him to bits. Um, he went through something the end of last year that, you know, probably threatened his reputation a little bit um, and, and definitely threatened his life. And he has a daughter around about the same age as mine. And uh, he said to me, Gus, I wanted, I wanted to talk to you for a little while um, since this thing happened last year. Uh, we've had, you know, since that's happened, I'm, I'm finding it really hard to do my job. I'm finding it really hard to, to get in and, and get it done every day because every time I go to do it, I get this huge, like, knotty. He said, it feels like I've been kicked, you know, that pain you get in the guts when you get kicked in the balls. He said, I feel like that all the time. And all that's running through my head is my daughter all the time. And so, well, bro, your priorities are shifted, man. Mm. It's not about being the tough guy who does the coolest job in the world anymore, dude. It's about you wanting your daughter to grow up happy, safe, secure, with a nice, with a good dad. You, you know, you, that happened. You didn't even know what happened, bro. <laughs> so, you know, and... Like, he's still struggling with that. You know, what do I do? You know, because if I go and tell people about it, I'm going to be judged or I'm going to be thrown out of my job. Yeah, well, maybe you will, man, but if you, if this is happening, is this really the right place for you? Yeah. And yeah I think a lot just, of guys, guys around Australia, around the world can relate to that. I mean, that's a whole other episode in itself, isn't it? That transitioning sure. to fatherhood, how that that you know, priorities change and your role and your main purpose in life really does change, doesn't it? 100%, man. 100%. And you can't... And no one prepares you for that, Carl. <laughs> no one no one can sit there and tell you... You're, you're, like everyone tells you your life's about to change, but no one tells you how or why, you know. You don't... And you never give... I never gave thought to it. I never gave thought to, you know, my priorities about to completely shift. Like, I was, there's, no, that's not what I thought, you know. And I, I always wanted to be a dad, but I still never thought about that. I still never thought about um, what I did for a living or or how people perceive me or whatever. Like, I never thought that that would impact um, my daughter's life or my children's life at all. But... It doesn't impact them because of what other people say. It impacts them because of how you behave based on what other people say or see. So, yeah, but you're right. I think you, you could talk for hours about that. <laughs> Maybe the next time we have you on, we can have a fatherhood episode. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I'm all about that. I'm all about that. Yeah. Now, tell me, be- Gus. If, if there's a guy out there who's listening to this really resonates with your story or some of the things you've been talking about and overall he's just struggling in one way or another, what's what's one word of advice you'd give them? 
I think just understand your priorities. I think I think if you're sitting there and 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 you're struggling with with um, you know your thought processes or your thought you're struggling with, am I being a good father or am I being a good role model or any of these things? Just really think about what your well one what your kids need or what where your priorities fit into your life at the moment. You know, because you you can have priorities you're living and priorities that you're thinking about, man. And if your priorities are just the ones you're thinking about, then are they really your priorities? And what are you doing about them? I guess. Mm. So I really think they need to look in. You know, if you're sitting there and you're struggling, like I take a real no bullshit approach too, Carl. Like, if you're fucking up, man, there's no excuse for you to fuck it up. You know. There's that many avenues out there nowadays, uh, like your organisation, bloke psychology, and numerous others look, that people you can bounce stuff off. Go to someone you trust to start with. Bounce, bounce it off them straight away. Talk, mate. Like open your fucking mouth and talk. <laughs> you know, we we're so bad at it, man. Like I'm still not great at it. You know, you ask my missus now, man. Like I'm shit house. Most of the time, it comes out eventually. But you were so bad at it. Open your fucking mouth. Hmm. And uh, there are so many, uh, I suppose, peer support sort of awareness campaigns and different organisations popping up now in the men's health space. There's never been a better time to take that first step. And that first step might not necessarily be an organisation like ours, like seeing a counsellor or psychologist. But there are so many different things you can do to take that first step and the one thing i suppose that rang true in the narrative that you've provided is that first step for a lot of people is actually understanding you know what is this am i just cranky or is it it's something a bit more than this because if you don't have that you can't acknowledge that anything's genuinely wrong can you no 100 yeah i absolutely agree mate look and understanding has saved my life literally just and, and opening my mouth, like I said before, opening my mouth saved my life, man, without a doubt. Because I went from being this cranky bastard to 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 then understanding something was wrong, and then understanding my situation, and then understanding then how perhaps I can try to make it better. Mm. You know, and like like you just so eloquently put it, mate. Yeah, understanding is the first step to recovery, mate, 100%. You need to know. So, Gus, I'm really appreciative of your service and also your time you provided us today. But very quickly, tell us what you're up to now because I know you've got some exciting things going on now in your new life and yeah. how can people get in contact with you or come and see you or uh, you know, get in contact over social media as well. Yeah, sure. So, we've got... Um, so I've now moved into to barber shops now. So I became a barber um, after getting out of the army. Um, sort of did something that wasn't going to damage my body or my mind too much. Um, so we went into I went into barber shops. So I've opened a barber shop in Coffs Harbour, New South Wales, called Jolly Roger Barber Bar. Um, we've got a second shop in Woolgoolga called the Shack Barber Shop. And we're just about to go with Jolly Roger Mobile, which is uh, going to be a mobile barber service as well. And you know what? Like this buys back into the whole psychology of it all, man. Like I wanted to create a really cool blokey place um, that feels like you're sort of getting pampered a bit by, you know, in a, in a masculine way. And what better way to do that than barbershops, man? And, and you know, guys are lapping it up. So we've got some awesome... Um, awesome things on the horizon really really exciting stuff uh, Jolly Roger Barber Bar on uh, Facebook and Instagram um, the Shack Barber Shop Facebook and Instagram and if they want to get in touch with me personally man they just get onto Jolly Roger Barber Bar at gmail.com shoot me an email dude and let's shoot the shit like I'll talk to you about some stuff dude but basically at the end of it you'll probably just get told to open your fucking mouth you know <laughs> I love it, Gus. But I mean, you are so generous with your time. And as I said, you know, really appreciative of the service that you've given our country and the sacrifices you've made along the way, but also for just sharing your story because stories like yours are so, so powerful for guys out there. And 
in terms of getting help, but also changing that narrative about what modern masculinity means. So thank you so much, dude. And I'm sure we'll have you on the show down the track or even maybe I'm thinking of Facebook Live on fatherhood. I reckon people would eat that up. I think that would be really powerful. So thank you so much, dude. I'd love to, mate. Anytime I can help. Thanks so much. No, pleasure. We'll chat to you soon, Gus. Thank you. See you, mate. Thanks again for tuning in to the Bloke Psychology Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review, share it with a friend, or subscribe to the podcast. If you want to contact us or find out any more about the work we do at Bloke Psychology, just go to blokepsychology.com.au. Take care, guys.